much of the history of industrial agriculture, consumers demanded of the food system four foundational criteria, price, safety, taste, and convenience. This hasn't changed, nor do I have reason to believe it will in the future. What has changed is that we've realized that if we make those our only criteria, we can fall victim to a host of other problems. Health issues, contributing to climate change, environmental degradation, inequities, and unfortunately, the list goes on. New values have emerged from consumers that want more out of our food system beyond just price, safety, taste, and convenience, which of course remain vital. After spending some time reflecting on the past 300 episodes of this show, I've compiled a list of seven consumer values that I think will continue to shape the future of the ag industry, and I've drawn from former guests to share them with you today. Now, I realize that fads come and go, but I don't think we're talking about fads here. We're talking about underlying values that will inform the way consumers eat, buy, and vote. And we as the ag industry ought to not only be aware of them, but factor them into our strategies and vision for the future of agriculture. Well, hello, fellow ag nerds. Thanks so much for joining me for the 300th episode of the Future of Agriculture podcast. My name is Tim Hamrich, and if you're interested in where innovative ideas meet practical realities in food production, I think you found the right show. 300 weeks seems like kind of a long time, but in some ways, uh, for me, it still feels like I'm new to this podcasting thing. To show up every week, though, with a new episode is kind of a grind, and I don't often come up for air and reflect on the show, on the concepts we cover, and on the guests we feature to sort of contextualize what this all means for the future of agriculture. But this week, I'm doing just that. In honor of this 300th episode, I took some time to look back uh, mostly at the last 100 episodes that I've done. So from episode 200 to today to see what threads sort of emerged for me as I reviewed them. Now, I didn't listen to every single episode, more just kind of reviewed the content, but there were several themes or several threads that did pop up for me and one of which ended up being the topic for today's show. That thread, as you might have saw in the title, are seven consumer values that are shaping the future of the ag industry. Now, a lot of times when we think about the future of agriculture without any context, our minds immediately go to the technology that might emerge. I mean, what tractors might look like, what genetics will improve, what robots will we use, how much food will be grown indoors, how will space colonies feed themselves? And that's all fine, but perhaps a more fundamental way to think about the future of agriculture is to zoom out a little bit more to think about how agriculture fits in a broader context. In other words, how are the wants and needs and values of consumers who are also voters, you could use those two words interchangeably, how are they changing and how might these factors influence where agriculture goes in the future? Now, to examine this question, I pulled clips from seven episodes that span the past 100 that I think do a pretty good job of putting these values on display for you here today. I'll also provide links to these episodes in the show notes and encourage you to go back and listen to the full episode if you haven't already. I look at these as levers that, when pulled by a critical mass of consumers and or voters, lead to real changes that echo throughout food supply chains. 
Just like the levers of price, safety, taste, and convenience resulted in the food system we have today, I believe these other levers, these other values, will be used to continue to evolve that food system into the future. Now, two quick caveats here before we dive in. Number one, this list is just my opinion that I've pulled anecdotally from the past 100 episodes of this podcast. And two, this is not meant to be an exhaustive list of what consumers value. But these do seem to be surfacing regularly in my weekly conversations about the future of agriculture, and I thought it was worth bringing them to light in this aggregated format of one single episode. So with that, here they are, starting with one that many of you, I'm sure, are probably expecting. And that is that more and more consumers are placing increasing value on the climate impact of their food. Last June, in episode 265, I spoke with Richard Waite of the World Resources Institute's Food Program. He's a senior research associate at WRI, the author of the Creating a Sustainable Food Future Report, and one of my personal favorite follows on Twitter, especially when it comes to food production and climate change. Despite all of the warnings from the scientific community, for the most part, it's been kind of business as usual when it comes to reducing the carbon footprint of food production. If the world's agriculture kind of stayed as it is today and we had to feed a lot more people and you get a lot of deforestation, if it continues to improve as it has over the past decades, and you can kind of reasonably expect it will, we still get quite a bit of deforestation. If you want to get that deforestation down to zero, and not only that, if you want to then open up some areas that are currently producing food to put some trees back where they were before, which is what you really need to get to net zero, as we were talking about, right? You need this kind of large-scale reforestation. You're going to have to improve productivity even quicker than you ever have before, right? So we had the Green Revolution. We kind of need to do that again, plus, and do it without some of the environmental impacts. So that's kind of the big issue. If we need to produce more food while freezing agriculture's land footprint, you know, stopping encroaching on forests and even free up some land for reforestation. And so that's going to require, you know, kind of unprecedented productivity improvements. And, you know, that's why it also requires looking at consumption patterns and things like reducing food loss and waste and, and in places where we eat a lot of meat, you know, shifting to a more plant-rich diet, although it doesn't mean everyone has to become a vegetarian. Concerns from not only consumers, but from chefs and food service companies have led to the Cool Food Program, in which companies are working with the World Resources Institute to track and reduce their carbon footprint over time. It's a group of, like I said, it's about 40 companies right now and a few, a few city governments and hospitals and universities, restaurant chains. And they've collectively pledged to reduce their, the greenhouse gas associated with the food that they're buying and serving by 25% by 2030. And then, remember, like I said at the, at the beginning, we need to, uh, agricultural sector needs to be looking at reducing emissions by at least two-thirds by 2050. So that 25% by 2030 from where the group has started would kind of get folks on the path. And so it's a you know, science-based greenhouse gas reduction target. So companies take the pledge, and then every year they they track the different types of foods that they purchased over the year, and they, they report that to us. We help them estimate the associated greenhouse gas emissions. We play that back to the companies, and then we report out once a year how the group is doing, because again, it's sort of like a collective effort. And we're actually um, just this week going to be publishing our first update report, the group's progress through 2019. And we've seen a significant greenhouse gas reduction, which is really cool, because it's kind of uh, it was as companies were kind of just joining. So it's great to see that so far. 
we work with them also to, you know, help them think through the kind of different things that they could be doing, you know, whether it's changing the types of dishes that they're serving or sort of their, um, you know, their cafeteria or menu layout or, you know, promoting certain dishes, so sort of taking the latest from behavioral science to help them think through, you know, a plan of given the way their business works, what are some, uh, you know, different things that they could be doing to move their offerings in a more climate friendly direction. And then we work with folks who are making progress to sort of then kind of showcase progress and talk about the different innovations that they're doing to kind of show what is possible. And so that's kind of how the program works. And at this point, they're doing this voluntarily. Uh, do you see a future where it's sort of like nutrition facts, where you're not allowed to put something out there unless you have been transparent with the carbon footprint of that product? It's interesting. I mean, I think there is a lot of interest right now in carbon labeling. I know there are some companies that have started doing it voluntarily. We actually have a sort of another arm of cool food called Cool Food Meals. And Panera is the first company that we're working with where they've actually published the greenhouse gas emissions of each of their dishes on their menu. And they've marked the, the lower emitting ones as Cool Food Meals. And if you go on the Panera app now, you can kind of look through and there's you know, a part of their menu that's a sort of lower emission food. You go on their website and see the calculations. So so there are companies that are starting to do that. It would be interesting, too, because to your point, you can't right now easily, you know, you can't go to the grocery store and go to the meat counter and look at all the different cuts of beef and say, well, this one was 23 kilos of CO2 per, per pound, and this one was 26, and this was 19. Like, we don't have that visibility right now. So, you know, there isn't that sort of link backward from the consumer to the producer to do that. I mean, I could see things moving in that direction, just, you know, just given all of the interest right now in combating climate change and in transparency. And, you know, for those who are leaders and making real strides in what they're doing, they'll probably want, you know, a way to, to label that as well, right? So this is the first consumer value that's already starting to become a lever for consumers and for food companies alike, minimizing the climate impact of food. Now, I should say this idea of a value becoming a lever for the food system is actually a concept that I took from the next guest you're going to hear from, Dan Kittridge of the Bionutrient Food Institute. He sees a future in which food choices are optimized for nutrient density, in other words, the nutrient content per calorie. Which, of course, brings us to consumer value number two, nutrition and health. So all these modalities are talking about different techniques and processes, but who's talking about results? You know, permaculture doesn't have a, a results metric. Organic does not have a results metric. Biodynamic does not have a results metric. You know, they're talking about practices and techniques. And so it seemed to me to make sense, and this is a part of what I picked up at the Acres community, the concept with the refractometer and bricks, that there was nutrient variation in food it seemed to me to make sense that the quality of the food should be the thing that we're focusing on, you know, being our objective. So it's not about the volume per se, but about the nutritional value. And it sure seems to be that those quote unquote, you know, the buzzword now is regenerative, but the biological practices, the organic, the whatever the practices are you want to call them, the things that cause life to work more well correlate with better water cycle function, better carbon cycle function, better soil carbon levels, better 
biology and the soil levels, better pest and disease resistance, lower cost of production, better nutrient levels, better flavor and aroma, better health outcomes for the animals that eat that food, whether they're chickens or pigs or cows or humans. It seemed to me that the nutritional value of the food, it was the center, the high ground, the point around which, as far as I'm concerned, no one can disagree or no one will disagree. People generally will say, yes, food should be nutritious. And so that's really where we have found our niche. When I looked around, I said, you know, who out there is focusing on this point? You know, who is focusing on the nutritional value of the food as an objective? And I couldn't find any organization out there globally that was doing it. And so I said, well, you know, I've been looking for a, a purpose. This seems like a, a reasonable one, you know, something to do with my life. And so that's really where I started. We featured Dan Kittredge this past November on episode 286. To actually bring nutrient density to consumers, we'll take both instrumentation so that this data can be collected easily, as well as some sort of matrix to determine how nutrient-dense a food is relative to its potential. This is no small task, but Dan sees tremendous opportunity in providing this lever of nutrition and health to consumers. We understand that most chronic disease has at its root nutritional deficiencies or imbalances. And so, you know, a lot of what is on the shelf right now is pretty low in the continuum, right? I mean, what we found from the data we've collected so far is that most crops are somewhere in the 15 to 30 percentile, say, whether it's copper or zinc or polyphenols or antioxidants, if we look at the full spectrum, most crops are in the, we'll call it the 20, 25th percentile. The vast majority of what's on the shelf has in it a quarter of what it could have. And so the implications for human health across the board, if our food is more nutritious, are that the level of chronic illness and degenerative disease and overall malaise, I think, can be dramatically reduced. Beyond that, you know, we can start talking about all kinds of other societal implications, but the hypothesis that there's a direct connection between soil health and plant health and human health and being able to use economic leverage to raise the bar across the board, I think does put us in a place for a viable future for civilization as we recognize it. So just to recap quickly, the first two consumer values I see shaping our food system and in turn affecting all of us that work in the ag industry are climate impact of food and what you just heard, a focus on health and nutrition. I can see a future in which a lot of purchasing decisions are made on this very data, which obviously impacts everything along the supply chain. One value you won't hear on this list is the desire of consumers to know where their food comes from. This comment gets brought up all the time in ag circles, so why would I not include it, right? Well, in my experience, it's not so much a matter of consumers needing to know exactly where their food was grown and exactly who grew it. In most cases, it's a matter of trust. Can I trust the way that this food was made and that it aligns with my values? So it's not so much about a QR code that a shopper can scan while they're in the produce aisle to see exactly what the farm looks like that the produce came from. I think that narrative is often talked about and frankly, overblown. Sure, there are real food safety and food fraud applications for detailed traceability, but in my opinion, it's not really a consumer value that's widespread and or growing. Now, with that said, 
There certainly is an increasing value amongst many consumers to have more of a connection with their food and with the source of their food. Now, this could be in buying directly from a farmer, as is the case with our next guest you're about to hear from, but it also can be just from trusting a brand or a label or just an appealing story or narrative. On episode 209, we heard the story of Jason Purcell, who transitioned his farming operation from commodity crops to producing and processing cooking oils under his own brand, Pristine Gourmet. To me, this is an example of the third important consumer value, which is connection to an authentic source. We started making some relationships with some chefs, with some restaurants here locally in Ontario. We're about an hour and a half west of Toronto, which is a huge kind of an epicenter of Ontario for an urban setting and plus a culturally restaurants, everything. So we made a good connections with some good key chefs. And that was kind of just the beginning of where we are now, just starting out with chefs and realizing that that is really our focus of where our brand is going to be widely accepted. Um, chefs just love new products, something that's local to them, something that has a story that's direct from the farm. We have the ability to invite them out to the farm. The, several times they'll bring their team out, just do crop tours, farm tours, and go through our mill. And we just, you know, really engaging conversations with them about how we farm and the kind of the biodiversity of our farm and how it's, you know, was kind of brought down through generations of my grandfather and how he was very adamant about being good stewards of our land and our in our you know our waterways our habitats that are around us and you know all these things all these topics are really engaging for the consumer but for these chefs and they just totally really kind of latched onto that and i think that that's where it's kind of helped us develop to be kind of where we are today so those very humble beginnings in the beginning i look back and it's kind of you kind of laugh and you go wow <laughs> what were we thinking and then today We've kind of expanded out into different areas, not just in food service, but we're also key ingredient suppliers for food manufacturing. I really love Jason's story, and I think it's a great example of a farmer capitalizing on one of these real trends of consumers valuing a direct connection to an authentic source. And I'm always looking for these types of stories of farmers finding value-added strategies that work at scale, especially if it involves kind of on-farm processing. So if you have any leads like that, feel free to send them my way, just as a side note there. The fourth consumer value is from an episode that frankly blew me away. About a year ago in episode 253, we featured Zinyi Lim of Pinduoduo, a Chinese e-commerce company that has reached an active user base of, at that time, probably more today, over 700 million people, so over twice the U.S. population. They did this, at least at the beginning, by offering a really fun and social customer experience in buying agricultural produce. This is consumer value number four, fun and social experiences. For us, our slogan has been more savings, more fun. Right. So I think what is driving savings is something that people often struggle to understand. They might think that, oh, you know, things on PDD are cheap just because, you know, they're, they're getting cast offs, right? They're getting low quality things and then trying to sell it on to other people who don't know any better. But I think that's just a very misconstrued notion because um, really what we are trying to provide 
is a way for producers, for merchants, to sell a larger volume of products in a shorter period of time, right? And in so doing, they can reap the benefits of economies of scale. And how we do that is through this notion of a team purchase. So it starts off by this you know, realization that for a lot of people, what you actually want to buy for things like, say, food or fresh produce, it can be influenced by those around you, right? Nobody wakes up and says, I have to buy a bunch of bananas like today, right? Like you don't necessarily, you know, have to buy the bananas if somebody comes up to you and says like, hey, my neighbor down the street is also in on this deal. Do you want in? We can buy peaches together for like 30% off the market rate. And then suddenly you think, hey, peaches are not bad. Like I don't mind having peaches instead of bananas. And so your demand for bananas on that day just got shifted into, you know, demand for peaches, right? And so that means that the peach merchant basically just got, you know, a bunch of orders coming in in a short period of time. And what that does, especially for agricultural products, is that it gives the merchants a lot more visibility, right? So this is very important for things that are perishable. And so in a matter of just a few years, PDD was able to just, you know, grow very organically to a massive scale in agricultural produce, right? Such that at a certain point, uh, we were indirectly influencing the market price for some of the agricultural products just because we had grown to such a massive size, right? Because people were coming together and forming teams and introducing uh, their friends to, you know, really good deals on the platform, etc. The other aspect that I mentioned was the more fun, right, or the Disney component. So, um, you know, we introduce games on our shopping app, right? So as you're browsing, um, you know, you might not be actively thinking about something to buy, but, you know, you just have a little bit of free time to kill. Maybe you're waiting for the bus and you might decide to play one of our games, right? It's a very simple game. Anyone from 8 to 80 can play it. You know, you're just watering a virtual tree on Toto Orchard. And when the tree bears fruit, you actually win a box of fruit, right? Delivered to your house for free. It's, uh, you know, on, on PDD, it's on the house. And that is something that is basically like a gamified loyalty card, right? And obviously the interactive elements include, you could also visit your friend's trees, right? So because we've seen that you bought things together or you shared a link with a certain person um, and that person reciprocated, you know, you guys are clearly friends we know that there's a relationship, right? And so all of that is also giving us some information about how you relate to different people in your social circles. So we can then see that, hey, someone might be really influential in a particular product category. So we know then that if, uh, say, a merchant places an ad for a certain product to these groups of power users, they are actually going to have an outsized influence on you know the other users who maybe didn't directly see the ad but then because of you know this influencer friend of theirs sending them a recommendation it might then send them down the path of discovering that product so i think you know because interacting with your friends um you know hanging out like playing it's so much interwoven into the user experience so i think that makes team purchase something that really sticks and performs well on our platform versus other platforms that may have just kind of adopted the form of it, but not really captured the spirit of it. Now, this type of social e-commerce and gamification has really taken off in China and may not be exactly culturally transferable to other countries like here in the US, but I do think the value of fun and social experiences 
is pretty universal. And I think this desire will create more opportunities for food and agriculture to tap into it the way that Pinduoduo has done for their Chinese consumers. You know, I think about agritourism and UPIC, and it seems like something that's small and quaint, but could technology leverage it at some sort of meaningful scale? Or are there other ways for us to tap into this desire for adventure and for fun and for social experiences that everyone is feeling, especially uh, after this pandemic or as we go through this pandemic? In these first four values of climate impact, nutrition, connection, and fun is a degree of privilege that I want to make sure I acknowledge that many people don't have out there. Consumer value number five that we're about to talk about is a good reminder that we can never take for granted what I said at the top of the show were the foundational consumer values of price, safety, taste, and convenience. Despite tremendous progress, there are still areas of the world where people do not have access to safe, affordable, available food. And the alarming thing is in some parts of the world, it's actually getting worse. In episode 220, I spoke with Paul Winters of the International Fund for Agricultural Development. He spoke extensively about this next value, hunger and poverty alleviation. So poverty uh, and hunger were both on the decline between 1990 and 2015, and we're doing quite well. The numbers of both are between 700 and 800 million, roughly around the world, that are either poor or hungry. Since 2015, though, uh, poverty reduction is kind of stagnated. We're still making progress, meaning there's less poor, but it's kind of flattening out. Areas where we had made a lot of progress for 25 years uh, are, are they're reaching kind of chronic poverty. So there's parts of Mexico, Brazil, of the Andean region, of India, of Indonesia, where you're getting to kind of the harder pockets of poverty. So you're, you're flattening it. But then there's places in sub-Saharan Africa where things are actually gotten worse. And so poverty is kind of flattening. Hunger is actually, though, on the increase since 2015. And so we, we reached a point where the, you know, the, the undernourished in the world was just under 700 million. But in the last five years, that's been increasing. And so it's, it's gone back up. So the concern is that we're continuing to go up. And there, there's three basic drivers of that. The first is conflict. So there's a lot of places in the world, see, see places like Syria, where, you know, it was a upper middle income country, and now things are quite bad. So you see conflict in Syria, Yemen, lots of North Africa, the Sahel. So that's one of the big drivers. There's climate change is, you know, a reality and weather patterns are changing. We see that in particular in parts of Sub-Saharan Africa, South Asia, and they are changing the, the weather patterns. And, and it just it, it affects agriculture uh, the most. Just because of climate change, the estimate is about 100 million more people will be poor. Uh, by 2030. And about half of that's just agriculture. So half of those are farmers. So 50 million more poor because of climatic changes that are occurring. Um, that's partly due to weather pattern changes, but also pests. So we see pests emerging in areas that didn't, uh, weren't there before. Um, we see these, you know, uh, recurrent events on that. Um, and then the third thing is economic slowdowns. So, you know, we've, we had a nice streak of growth for the last 20, 25 years, and there are places that have slowed down. And so all, the combination of those three things has made things a little bit, first a little stagnant and now getting worse. Now, that being said, then COVID comes along and uh, has a particularly 
is causing all sorts of problems in agriculture in particular. Um, so I know it's a health crisis, but it's created an economic crisis. The estimates vary from anything from 50 million more people in poverty uh, immediately just because of this to up to 120 million more people in poverty. Um, a lot of those are going to be in rural areas. And so those numbers that I just gave you, anywhere from 10 to 15 years of progress could be lost in one year because of COVID. And in, in effect, you know, all the gains of globalization that have occurred could be lost. I hope this serves as a reminder that access to affordable, safe, desirable, and convenient food really can never be taken for granted. I want to be careful for this episode not to sound like I'm recommending we put any of these values I list above those that are foundational for basic human needs. Uh, I hear often well-intentioned people out there say things like, well, food should just be more expensive to reflect the true costs. And while I see what they're trying to get at, they're inadvertently creating a less food secure environment for those to try to move the overall food system to their higher ideals. And that's certainly not what I'm advocating for here on this episode. But I do think we can build on these strong foundations to improve our food system and address these values because there are real problems. And one of those is our next consumer value shaping the future of agriculture, waste. Now, this could refer to food waste or animal waste, or as was the case in episode 224, plastic waste. I spoke with Green Dot Bioplastics CEO Mark Remmert, whose company produces bio-based degradable resins for bioplastics using plant byproducts. With traditional plastics, we all know what happens. The trash goes to the landfill, gets sealed in place, and it remains there for tens if not hundreds of thousands of years without any degradation. But with these biodegradable plastics, we can send them to a different place, to a place called a uh, composting facility, or as I said, even in your own backyard. And there they can biodegrade and return to the earth. Even more exciting and also more problematic is the amount of plastic that we now know that enters our oceans. And we've all seen the statistics. Uh, the Ellen MacArthur Foundation talks about more plastic in the ocean than fish by 2050. The National Geographic all year has had a whole series of articles about plastics in the environment and particularly in the ocean. And what we um, are really excited about is developing bioplastics that can also biodegrade in a marine environment. And while certainly we're not advocating that people should throw their trash in the ocean, if it does end up there, rather than turning into microplastics and dramatically affecting the, uh, the ocean life, these materials can also gently biodegrade in a marine environment. Year by year, things are changing. Plastics as a whole continue to grow slightly higher than GDP. So maybe, you know, two or 3% a year, but bioplastics are growing 10 times as fast. So growing 20 or 30% a year. So clearly brand owners, OEMs, consumers are starting to figure it out. They're starting to understand what these materials can be used for. There's starting to be more and more examples of companies that are successfully converting to bioplastics. And so I think it'll be very much like 
the groundswell that finally happened with alternative energy for a long time. Wind turbines and solar panels seem to be, you know, sort of a really fringe, uh, crazy way to think about making power. It was also very expensive, needed to be subsidized. Today, we see wind farms and solar farms going up much faster than traditional coal fire or gas-fired power plants. And, and I think the same thing will happen with bioplastics. Well, I was really inspired by Mark's work and extremely bullish on the future of plastic alternatives. But I think this value of waste minimization goes even further. Companies are looking for ways to reduce or even eliminate packaging. New zero-waste stores are popping up, and more people want to know that they're being a conscious consumer when it comes to the waste generated from what they're buying. So we've covered so far climate, nutrition, connection, fun, hunger alleviation, and waste reduction. This brings us to the final consumer value that I wanted to cover today, the social impact of food. Now, this includes the conditions of farm workers and really everyone affected by the production, processing, and distribution of food products. Sarah Mock is the author of Farming and Other F-Words, a book I highly recommend. She joined us back on episode 210 before she had even announced that the book would be coming out. And on the episode, she posed an interesting question, one she really values and one she says drives her work. Essentially, is it possible to farm without exploitation? And I think that that question is important because it's not like it it could mean a lot of different things. And I think like what you, you know, every word in that sentence is important. You know, what does it mean to farm? What does it mean to exploit? What, like, what is possible mean? Like the levels there go really deep and it lends itself to a lot of different questions around labor, mental and emotional well-being of people, health and nutrition, environmental sustainability, financial sustainability. For me, what's really exciting about that question is the answer might be no, which is crazy. Like, it would make sense if it is in a way because agriculture is inherently an altering of a natural a natural system, a natural space. And, you know, maybe it's it's always inherently going to like degrade the systems it's a part of. But like we should know the answer to that question. Probably we should be able to look at the, the facts and the truth and, and, you know, make choices around that. And I think that the possibility that the answer to that question is no is really scary. And that's why people don't want to know, because as long as you don't know, then you don't have to make any changes or force yourself in one direction or the other. But there's lots of different ways that a system or a practice can be exploitative. And it's, it comes down to cost in a lot of ways, you know, just because one, someone isn't paying the monetary cost doesn't mean that it doesn't get taken out somewhere. And, you know, if, if it's buying cheap, produce at the grocery store, you know, that probably comes a little bit out of workers' wages, that comes a little bit out of farmers' profits, that comes a little bit out of health and nutrition, that comes a little bit out of the environment. Someone's pocketing the difference and someone's paying the difference. And is it possible to create a system that's like really fair where everyone puts in, gets something out of a system that they, that's equivalent to what they put into it or, you know, a, a appropriate percentage of what they put into it? I don't know. Well, what a great place to end today's episode. I hope this was even half as thought-provoking for you as it was for me to re-listen to these old episodes and pull these insights out for you. So again, just to recap the seven consumer values I think will play a role in shaping the future of agriculture, 
They are the climate impact of the food, the nutrient density and health associated with these foods, connection to an authentic source, fun and social adventures, hunger and poverty alleviation, waste reduction, and social impact. Again, I know these values are not all going to play out equally, and there are certainly others that I didn't include here today, but I think each of them will play a central role in the ongoing conversation about how to improve our food system. They each present both challenges and opportunities for those of us in agriculture. If you did get value from this, I encourage you to go back and listen to the full episodes with these impressive individuals you heard today. And I'd also welcome, of course, a rating and review on either Apple Podcasts or Spotify if you have a spare minute. Thanks so much for 300 episodes. This milestone, along with my 40th birthday, both happened within a month of each other, which really has led to a lot of reflection and soul searching from me about what I want the next season of life to look like. I have some ideas that I'm not quite ready to share yet, but we'll be sharing in the coming weeks and months. So I hope you'll stick around for the next leg of the journey. Thanks so much for your time and your attention. I really don't take it lightly. I'll be back next week with another story of ag innovation. 